It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. This week, my guest is Reverend Dr. Serene Jones. Serene is currently the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Prior to that, she served as a professor of theology at Yale Divinity School for 17 years. During that time, she was my professor of systematic theology, somebody I learned a great deal from, so I was quite excited to speak with her and a little bit anxious too. In our conversation, we touch upon whether or not the mainline church has an obligation to speak out against Donald Trump, and we touch on a number of other things, including some terrific insights and ideas from her book, Trauma and Grace, which is a surprisingly good book for preaching. I highly recommend it, particularly if you're working right now on a Good Friday sermon. Here she is, Serene Jones. How often are you preaching now in your role as as president of Union Seminary? It varies, but I end up preaching every other week to once a month. Um, I usually preach in some form or another at Union a couple of times a semester, and I'm pretty regular at Riverside Church and a handful of churches around New York City, and then four or five times a year I'm invited to pulpits around the country, uh, which usually include a weekend. Um, doing some Christian education, um, some extended work. So, but so I'm not as regular as uh, most of the pastors that you've been interviewing. You have to get up and do this every Sunday morning. Have you found since you've assumed the role of president of a seminary that preaching is different for you? Does it feel different to be there representing this august institution as opposed to being a regular every everyday preacher? You know, it's interesting, being the president of Union has affected almost how I do almost everything, except preaching. Mm. Um, When I step into the pulpit and begin to preach, uh, the sense of call and vocation and what I am called to do there so overrides any other institutional identity I have that um, it just does, it's not an issue. Is that a self-conscious thing, or does that did you find that happening? I just found it happening. I didn't know that would happen, but um, sometimes union gets mentioned in my sermon. Sometimes it doesn't, and it only makes it in if it's appropriate to the context that I'm preaching in. Uh, whereas in every other public speaking um, event that I do, uh, part of my job is to talk about the mission of the school. But when I preach, uh, if it makes it in, it's only by the accident of the call of the gospel, uh, not because I'm the president. It's a, it's an odd thing. Was that similar when you were training as a theologian and as an academic? Were you preaching during that time? I didn't preach as often, but I was still preaching. And again, the preaching persona was so powerful that it would take over um, my persona as professor. In the Uh, classroom? Yeah. Yeah, no, it would. I mean, when I was teaching, I was teaching. And then when I was preaching, I clearly did not feel that I was in the role of professor. Oh, I see. Even when you were preaching in an academic context, like at Yale Divinity School or someplace? I was preaching at Yale Divinity School. I would step into that pulpit um, in Marquand Chapel and 
the power of the gospel and the sense of what it means to do proclamation is so radically different than uh, the role of teaching and the role of speaking out, the role of explicating. Did your own sense of call to preach and call to teach, did those, were those tightly intertwined or did one come before the other? I graduated from college and knew I wanted to go to seminary, but I wanted to go to seminary because I loved uh, learning theology. I loved history and philosophy. I was a political activist, and I thought the church was a wonderful place to stand to try to make the world a better place. But And I knew seminary was where one could go and do this exciting kind of stuff, but I had no intention at all of ever becoming a minister or serving a church. I wanted to be a teacher. Mm. Um, and it was only about halfway through my PhD program that I started to realize that, uh, that what I was doing at, uh, at this point, Yale Divinity School, was ministry um, in lots of my interactions with students. And I was really had a deep sense of a gospel claim uh, that in addition to teaching, I was called to preach and to uh, bear witness to the gospel in that manner. Uh, I also, I think, had a growing sense of how important it was. This was back in the 80s, and it's still the case, sadly, uh, for women to just have physical presence in the pulpit as reverends. Um, um, and for me to stand up there in church as a doctor is a very different kind of authorizing than as a reverend. And it's a very different kind of authorizing for me to open Karl Barth and start explicating the loving freedom of God, the one who loves in freedom, and for me to stand in front of a congregation uh, who comes anchored in faith, uh, perhaps drifting, vexed by the world around them, seeking to hear uh, why uh, a light has come into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So you decided to pursue ordination while preparing to become a professor. Were you then ordained as a, as a preacher and a minister during that process? Yes, I was ordained in the uh, process by both the Christian Church Disciples of Christ and the United Church of Christ at the same time. There was a short period in which, the, because of the conversations about union between disciples and UCC, uh, they were doing a lot of joint ordinations. And so there's a handful of us out there who have both at the same time. Oh, interesting. But that's done. It, it didn't work. Mm. <laughs> we never be. Okay. Um, so it's sort of like the Southern Baptists. You have this little group of women who were ordained for a, about a five-year period, and then the Southern Baptists decided to change their mind about it. It's a wonderful group of women. So, Were the disciples or have the disciples been kind of on a parallel track with the UCC in terms of ordaining women and the number of women in parish ministry? Well, actually, the disciples had never not ordained women. Um, it's a wonderful story that our, our tradition tells um, as it was developing as a kind of westward movement um, comprised of uh, sort of an interesting combination of Presbyterians and uh, Baptists, um, the Stone Campbell movement, uh, they found first that women who were part of this movement were much better on the prairies, uh, in sometimes very harsh conditions, um, preaching the gospel than the men were, and that if you were ordained as a minister, you'd get half fare on your trains. So they just decided, what the heck, let's ordain these women. They're, they're doing better than the men, and we can save a lot of money. So uh, for very pragmatic <laughs> 
reasons, uh, we made a theologically good decision despite ourselves. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, correlation between that and a point that I've heard you make recently around the economy and the way in which local church clergy are paid poorly relative to other you know, some professions that are require a similar amount of education and debt. Um, and you said, I wrote this down in, a, I forget where I saw you say this in an interview somewhere, that, that you think, I'm quoting you now, ministry has opened up more to women because in the broader economy, women are the ones who will take lower paying jobs. And that you said then, you didn't think that in most denominations that hire women and men, that these churches would choose a man simply because of the economy. Um, but that this can happen in terms of churches calling women. Is that something that you're seeing with your students who are coming out of union right now? Yes. Uh, we still have about 50-50 men and women. Um, the men are still getting more jobs than the women, um, but the women who are getting jobs are getting um, associate-level jobs that are very low-paying, or they're getting you know, yoked small churches in rural communities that uh, no one will go to. Um, and I think we're just now in the mainline churches beginning to see the first generation of women moving into senior minister positions that actually have, you know, some economic uh, weight behind them. But uh, and, and the students at Union are also sort of unique in that many of them are going to work in the nonprofit sector and community organizing in jobs where they're not going to get paid hardly anything. Um, they get paid even worse to be community organizers than they do to be a, a deacon in the church. So are, are your graduates, do you feel like, does Union have the self-understanding that it's equipping people to go forward into church ministry or into a more public kind of ministry? Is there a, a history either way at the school? Um, we do have a long history of teaching students how to speak in a very strong theological voice in a public in the public realm, so that to imagine that when they uh, engage the world as pastors, they're not just engaging a small community of believers, but they are also engaging the hearts and minds of the world. To use language in our mission statement, uh, but for most of Union's history, that's still and even today means engaging the church first and foremost. Um, we're seeing an interesting trend. I think this is happening in, in some other seminaries as well. But over the last three years, if you were to ch look at the checked boxes for denomination, uh, the unaffiliated that are coming to seminary would be the largest denomination. But what we're seeing happening um, is that they get here unchurched, uh, but with some sense of calling. And by about their second year, they've decided the church might, in fact, be an interesting place. Uh, by the end of the second year, they imagine that you can even do good for the world in the church. By the third year, they're completely convinced that it's the most interesting, eccentric, radical, revolutionary, engaged, loving place that one could go. And so uh, the vast majority of them leave here going towards the pulpit. It's an interesting phenomenon. So as the church has become more marginalized culturally, its its allure in some ways grows, right? Because of... It's not, it's this eccentric place. Well, I think the church has always been a lot more eccentric than we give it credit for. But yes, and our, and our students are not, um, they don't have a church that they're seeking to serve that is the church triumphant. Um, it really is a church that is 
the church that's close to the ground and a church committed to really addressing the vast and growing needs of our times. Do you think in terms of those vast and growing needs of our time, I may in my mind have you pigeonholed as much more of a, a Bartian than you are because you're one of the people I learned Bart from, but you know, he has this insistence that theology exists to serve the church, to serve the preaching ministry of the church, really. Um, and as you've stepped into this role as public theologian, do you see theology as having a broader purpose than just the church? Yes. In fact, stepping into this role at Union and becoming part of this community and its history, but also being forced myself uh, to speak again and again in contexts that aren't primarily church contexts, has really expanded my appreciation for the scope of uh, the scope of the need for theological conversation. I I think we are living in in a in a very dangerous moment in history. Um, at the very moment we are seeing sort of the 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 slow collapse of of Protestantism and um, Catholicism in North America is at the very same moment that um, we're seeing this growing uh, sense of both despair and a yearning for meaning and for what the gospel has to offer. And uh, given the place of the gospel in the midst of that tension of great need and growing unintelligibility uh, to prepare people for ministry who don't find that tension a problem but find it an opportunity is a really rare privilege i mean i think you know different institutions uh, do different things and what union has always done somehow is the right thing to be doing at this moment in u.s history so you can draw on the deeper history of the place i mean i was thinking about this because i it seems like a faulty assumption to assume Theology exists to serve the church. I guess that rests on the assumption that everyone's going to church. But if people have stopped going to church, it would seem to me then that the role of the public theologian is more important than it was back in the days of Christendom. Yes, no. And, you know, Bart was condemning um, a theology that he thought had become overly apologetic um, and wasn't sort of claiming its strength and its dogmatic voice uh, in a time and in a context where he just assumed the reality of the church. It meant something. Um, of course, we have to always remember that by when, what Bart meant by the church wasn't just a red brick building. Um, it was the community who, who heard and who woke up um, to the gospel proclamation of love. Uh, but right now, uh, the world we're in, you can't assume that community. And I am convinced more than ever that the message of God's radical love, God's free love, uh, needs desperately to be heard. And we are called to talk about it in any kind of way that we can to get through. Do you think the church has a unique responsibility to, not to overdraw this Donald Trump Adolf Hitler comparison, but there is this sort of fascistic thing that seems to be happening right now. Do you think the church has an obligation to speak to the kind of 
it's I don't know if it's if, if it's fear mongering that that Donald Trump is doing or if it's simply tapping into what's already there. Um, but I don't know. It's I, I feel like in a strange thing here in a progressive church in Chicago, I, I, I have not met a single person who is supporting this guy. Um, so for me to get up in the pulpit and rail against him is just preaching to the choir. Um, but I also feel like we ought to be raising our voice somehow right now. Yes, we have to speak about it. Um, and even if you're speaking to the choir, the choir is a choir of bodies who have the capacity to also speak and act in the world. And, um, you know, to not speak out against it is to fall silent in the face of what I consider evil. And if we don't do that, what else is there for us to do? I mean, seriously, we're called to proclaim love. We're called to speak out against hate. God is a God of love who loves all, all of creation. And if that's not what we are called to do and be in the world, then we have no purpose. So if we're not speaking out against Donald Trump in ways active and real, something's very wrong with the Christianity we think we're professing. And I think we have, the mainline has a particular obligation to do that right now because there's this strange way in which he has claimed the mantle of the mainline and has this kind of what I would characterize as this kind of 1950s smug disdain for what he sees as weird strains of Christianity. The way he talked about um, Seventh-day Adventism, for instance, and he, the way he talks about his own self-avowed Presbyterianism, it feels, oh, well, I don't, I mean, I don't know how to make sense of the guy, but it feels very um, anachronistic, but also like he's trying to speak our language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but um, I mean, this is a little bit off track to that exact question, but I think in particular in the United States, quite Protestants have a, uh, have to take up the mantle of describing, claiming, and actively trying to dismantle white supremacy because it's driving Donald Trump's campaign forward. And it's a white supremacy that we've all participated in, in ways conscious and unconscious. And this is the moment, if we can't be as as myself, a white person, involved in unmasking that deep brutality that lives in our structures and our psyches right now, as a white supremacist, comes to the stage claiming Christianity when he's not even, you know, got any of this theological background, we've got to do it. And the other thing is, is that as Christians, we need to be standing up and condemning Islamophobia because it spews out of Trump's mouth, but it spews out of the mouths of almost every Republican candidate. Um, and it's dangerous. It goes fundamentally against the gospel. And too many Christians who claim to be liberal, in fact, know very little about Islam, uh, wouldn't understand Islamophobia that hit him in the face. And we have a duty to our neighbor to be addressing that as Christians. How is that at Union? You have a, there is intentionally an interfaith faculty, right? So you have it's not only Christians who are on the faculty there. Yes, we have a Muslim uh, woman who teaches Islam and social justice, and uh, we're starting to get a cohort of Muslim students going through our MDiv program. Um, and we have a new institute that we're launching just around Islam and social justice, and that institute has both national and global reach. 
Um, we're also, of course, across the street from Jewish Theological Seminary, which has been a part of our programming for decades. And then we're starting a Buddhist track uh, through our MDiv. So are these attempts to teach Christian students and Unitarian students about Islam, or are you teaching Muslim students as well? We are teaching Muslim students. Um, there's not a critical mass of Muslim students to teach at this point. Uh, so most of Jerusalem T's courses are uh, courses on Islam uh, that she teaches uh, with a mind to the fact that she's teaching Christian students. How do you... But she How teaches you... courses like in the Quran, so Christian students have to sit down and read the Quran and think about interpretation. How do you do that without accidentally enabling the, the notion that we're all kind of saying the same thing and really we're going to subsume the particularities of different religions' truth claims under this kind of broadly liberal tolerant umbrella? You know, do you know what I'm trying to ask? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that, I get asked that question a lot. And you know what's so funny is when you actually start engaging in, in this kind of work, it has the opposite effect. You start reading the Quran and you start studying Islam, and the first thing the students notice is, wow, this is not Christianity. This is not Christianity. Not, well, they're not saying the same thing. So it's a little bit like an English speaker learning how to speak Spanish as an adult. You actually become paradoxically more eloquent as an English speaker when you're holding up your native tongue against another one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, you begin to, you're startled by the difference and you begin to realize that things that you just thought were givens uh, about your Christianity are in fact unique to Christianity. I mean, you also along the way discover some surprises in terms of similarities, but I would say the the startling jolt of the differences is quite transformative for students. I don't just want to talk about Donald Trump, but there is one more question <laughs> I wanted to ask. He, he's on my mind this week. Um, what did you think of the Pope's denunciation of Trump, the Pope trying to excise him from Christianity itself? So this Pope, I love what he is doing and saying in the world. Um, I do not usually profess to be a believer in historic miracles, but I think this Pope is a miracle. Um, when I heard his comments about Donald Trump, I had two reactions. Uh, the professor and theologian in me um, says, God, I wish he had said that Donald Trump is not acting like a Christian, rather than Donald Trump is not a Christian, because I think that's what he was trying to convey. He wasn't trying to cast Donald Trump into the outer darkness as if the Pope is the one to judge. But rather he was saying, if a, if a Christian is a Christian, this is the way they act, and his behavior does not comport with the gospel. Um, but there was another part of me that just said, you know, inside, go Pope! You know? Why should we be timid about the claims of the gospel when it comes to these horrible statements about walls and claims about people and communities that have deathly consequences? Who are we to sit by and shyly worry about, you know, getting the correct syntax about whether or not one is acting like or actually isn't? I think that's great. I had a very similar reaction. I thought, I mean, the Protestant in me kind of sat up and said, well, who are you to tell me who, are, who is or isn't a Christian? And at the exact same time, I was just <laughs> cheering that, uh, like, finally, somebody is throwing it down with this guy. Um, I want to ask you a few questions from your book, Trauma and Grace. I picked a copy of that book up 
to get ready for this interview and I expected something very different from, from what I got. Um, I thought this would be a rather dry work of theology and instead I picked it up and it's a book about preaching, um, or largely about preaching as I read it. And, um, at one point in the book, you, you list a variety of theologies, theologies of the cross. And then you say my, my sense of which Christological model speaks most powerfully to trauma shifts in relation to the stories of the survivors I read and listen to. Sometimes one theology of the cross seems correct, at other times a different interpretation more aptly makes the point that Christ saves. Um, if, if there is no stable theology of the cross to offer to the trauma survivors in our congregations, how do we preach that? So when I started writing the Trauma and Grace book, uh, I was determined, um, it took 10 years to do it, I was determined to uh, figure out a theology of the cross that um, could take into it um, the reality of trauma. And I took up this mission in my own mind um, as I became increasingly aware as a minister of how when a pastor looks out on a congregation, you know, the chances are uh, the kind of rational, coherent, uh, well-grounded, emotionally stable person that one imagines oneself speaking to is very rare, and that the vast majority of people in the congregation um, are suffering uh, cognitively and emotionally from, from wounds and from trauma that has never been addressed. So well, how does that affect the preacher's task? Um, and I thought I was going to you know, unfold as a systematic theologian a Christology that could hold that weight. One Christology that was Christology, yeah. And I never found it. I never, it never appeared. And one day, about eight years into the project, I realized that what happens on the cross is that we are in the mystery of God's freedom. We are saved. But it is not a theory. Um, And to make that reality come awake and be present to people is what preaching does when the cross is preached and it's not tied to one set of theories it's not so the cross is stable there is nothing in all of human history more stable than the cross but the cross doesn't need a quote stable theology in order for its stability to be preached and and i think that's part of the power of the cross is it ruptures meaning um it ruptures our attempts at coherence. It ruptures our um, desire to turn Christianity into a kind of logical whole that we can master and then deploy. It resists that at every turn. And that's partly why it speaks so powerfully to people who have been traumatized because trauma fractures meaning. So th- so a, a person suffering from PTSD is going to have a fractured sense of self, right? And a fractured sense of reality. So if the cross is also stable yet open to this multiplicity of meaning and interpretation, mm-hmm. it can it can meet a person where they are. Yeah, and I think the cross, if it has any theology, is it's more like a um, understood not uh, logically but poetically um, in the sense that meaning happens in poetry 
in the juxtaposition and the surprises of, of, of language and of reality, not in its um, carefully crafted logic. And I think of the power of the cross more like that, which, in an interesting way, more mirrors the psyche of trauma. You say at the same time that the um, that the cross also, or in the Gospel of Mark, at least in the original ending of the Gospel of Mark, that it also gestures toward the limits of language itself to convey meaning. I've always thought that poetry, good poetry, does the exact same thing, that it gets to the point I mean, it's fascinating that language at its most sublime hits the limit of, of language's capacity and in a way crosses it or acknowledges it in a manner that the most eloquent prose can't ever do. You, know, you could think of the cross as the, the sub, most sublime edge of reality. Mm. Do, you th- do you think, though, that... Do you, do you think of other Christian doctrines as having that same, as being open to that same multiplicity of meaning. Um, I think what I'm trying to ask is this, like, I love that part of your book, and I have seen that reality play out in the lives of my own parishioners over the years, and, and in my own life. But I also think in order for that to happen, I have to have a pretty fixed incarnational theology. Does that make sense? Like, the one who is experiencing the cross, I need to have a, a, a pretty orthodox definition of, of who Jesus is in order then to experience all of those different ways the cross can convey the truth of God. Mm-hmm. So I think it matters sort of how you uh, put different doctrines together theologically. I mean, one way to view it, as you've just described, is that if you have a very strong doctrine of creation and theological anthropology and incarnation, then the weight of those can hold the cross in such a way that it can fracture in its meanings. So this is where my own disciples' background and my own, you know, sort of old-school Protestantism comes through. This is probably where I resonate most deeply with Bart, but also liberation theologians, is that I think actually when you begin to understand and grasp in its in its fracturing the reality of the cross, um, other doctrines uh, begin to fracture and and look different. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, if you have too stable a doctrine of creation, um, how is one able to even sort of keep one, oh, your eyes open in today's world as we look at what's happening to our planet? You know, it's, it's, it's the ossification of doctrine that has often been the most harmful stone around the neck of Christians. I listened to a sermon that you preached about climate change. I think it was preached at Union. And you didn't make this explicit comparison, but I felt that in listening, a comparison between Christ's crucifixion and what we're doing to the earth right now. Well, I think in theologically, uh, what one sees on the cross is what the principalities and powers do to to God and God in human form do does to humanity. This is what the principalities and powers do. They torture and they kill. Um, and that we have been hindered in our in the history of Christian theology by thinking about that body that is is ripped to shreds and killed as only uh, being limited to you know, uh, human bodies. 
Um, I think what we're seeing right now with the de destruction of our earth is how interconnected we as humans are to all of the created order. Yeah. One of the things I've thought about in terms of trying to think toward, feel toward Christian, a Christian perspective on the environment is that we would be well served to think about the earth as our sibling, you know, as, as something that we're created out of, but also with both, you know, both of us children of the same creator and that we have a set of obligations to the earth. Yeah. That's um, a nice image. I like that. Yeah. It's, you know, I often try to remind myself that I am actually made out of earth. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like the earth is not something over there, but that I, the earth is me. Right. Um, in that same sermon, you make a move that you also almost prescribe in your book. There's a chapter in, in the book, Trauma and Grace, called The Unending Cross. And you say, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but that preachers shouldn't be so concerned with the endings of sermons um, and in the way in which the Gospel of Mark is unending and just leaves open what the women are to do with what they've been told and doesn't resolve that for us. Um, I read that and I wanted to ask you, well, what does that look like in the pulpit? And then I thought you kind of made that move in this climate change sermon, which I would direct our listeners toward. If you Google Serene Jones climate change, you'll find it. Um, but you ended in a, you know, you went hard at the guilt that North Americans bear and you didn't try to end on a note of indictment or a note of absolution. You just called people toward the cross and toward the table and left it open. Um, is that an intent? Is that a, a, a rhetorical device that you're employing an intentional thing that you're doing, or does that just happen when you're composing a sermon? Uh, that's actually my theology. <laughs> imagine that uh, there's some intention in it um, I think again it goes back to how one understands the world in which one finds oneself and its own obsessions and its peculiar sins and one of the sins of America has been since our inception our insistence that, that uh, somehow we are exceptional and that the, the, that the movement of history is towards some redemptive resolution and that that is sort of inevitable and our task as Americans is to realize that and I have just come to completely reject that to reject not only its you know roots in reality but its roots in Christianity and, and have moved much more towards uh, a more present sense of what it means for the reality of grace to come breaking into the moment um, it's not resolving for us the great traumas of history. I mean, we could well just we could well destroy this earth. We may have already done it. Um, and so, if the task of preaching is always to end on a note that prescribes that it's all going to be finally okay, that's simply not true. Now, having said that, I do think in the great mystery of grace, we are finally all okay. The earth and all humanity together. But that's very different than making a claim about how we relate to this present moment. And if we're so intent on resolving and making it all bearable, um, then uh, we're actually having to deny th the situation we're in. And I feel that way strongly, too, about white supremacy in this country. I feel that, that, our, that our focus on narratives of redemption and our desire uh, for some sort of forgiveness and resolution has caused white Christians 
to too quickly move beyond the reality of 247 years of chattel slavery uh, to a theology that wants to talk about reconciliation when it hasn't even looked or taken in the fullness of that blood-soaked ground and this ground they stand on. So there's a rush toward an easy sort of grace. Yeah. That, I mean, I think the hungering for it from white people, myself included, is authentic and real, but there has been a, a total unwillingness to do the work necessary to get there. Well, the hungering is a hungering for, I find in myself, I put myself in this category, oftentimes when it comes to race, the hungering is for it to just go away and for everything to be okay. Mm. My, my, I didn't own slaves. My grandparents didn't own slaves, that kind of thinking. Yeah, no, and why can't it just go away? What's this problem that stays with us? Um, and, you know, we're partly able to do that because we're white um, and we can just wheel it away. To ignore it as a sort of abstraction. Yeah, know. we can ignore it yeah. as an abstraction. But if you're black or brown in, in America, you can't will it away uh, because it slaps you in the face every day. And so part of our privilege is our ability to ignore it. I also think that, you know, you can't have chattel slavery in place for 247 years and then uh, uh, the, the next whole generation of Jim Crow and now the new Jim Crow, without having to put in place structures of mind and habits of heart in the white community that allow it to repress the reality of what's happening and also allow it to justify its own brutality and privilege. Like it's deep in us as yeah. people, deep, deep, deep. Yeah. And Christians should be at the forefront of dealing with this because it's not going away. And we have the language to unpack it. And as you say, to not I think part of the fear is a fear of judgment, right? Not only cultural judgment, not only the judgment of the oppressed, but also the judgment of God. And as you were just saying, we have the language and the truth to be able to to hold that paradox of love and judgment at the same time. In fact, I mean, it's the love that allows you to bear the judgment. Serene, thank you so much for this conversation. I wish it could go on. And um, Union is lucky to have you as their leader, that's for sure. Oh, thank you. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Centuries Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.